Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so we're going to get right to it. Later, we'll meet comedian Jessica Curson. We'll talk about her feature-length documentary, Hysterical, which explores the changing landscape of women in stand-up comedy. We'll talk about how she taught Robert De Niro to be funny and her return to Just for Laughs. First, though, let's meet Tim Long. The Canadian comedy writer has been an executive and consulting producer on The Simpsons for more than 20 years. He's written for The New York Times and The New Yorker, and on July 30th, a movie that he wrote called The Exchange, which is the true story of a socially awkward teen, loosely based on himself, who discovers that a French exchange student is not as sophisticated and cultured as he had hoped, will be available on VOD. Let's get to know Tim Long, who joined me via Zoom from California. Something go wrong, blame Stefan. A squirrel get broken, blame Stefan. Substitute teacher, it gets pregnant, blame Stefan. What? Congratulations on the movie. Oh, thank you so much. And it's based on a true story. It's based on your experience. So I'm going to set the stage a little bit for people. Okay. Uh, you're in Los Angeles right now. Yeah. But... Uh, you're from Exeter, Ontario, born in Manitoba, but grew up in Exeter, Ontario, a town that doesn't even have an elevator. Is that true? <laughs> you know what? I believe it has an, I, boy, I'm going to get in trouble if I get this wrong, but I believe it has an elevator. It has several elevators for uh, crops and grain, mm -hmm. but I do not believe it has an elevator for people. And if some, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure someone's going to blast me on Twitter and I will accept that blast happily but no i don't think it does you were super into comedy and humor you started a, a humor newspaper in high school what kind of things it, were you seeing then i was super into i mean i started off as a huge aficionado of, of the old mad magazine mm -hmm. um it's funny my interest in a lot of kind of what i guess all the great cinema of the 70s and 80s i think i encountered a lot of it through mad magazine first like yeah, i yeah. saw the mad magazine parody of the godfather probably 15 years before I saw the movie. I believe it was called The Claude Father. Yeah. Um, they were they were the kings of the first take. <laughs> yeah. So when they came up with a joke, they were like, good enough, let's go with it. <laughs> but um, so I love Mad Magazine. And then I said, I got, I got older. I got into, um, you know, all the touchstones of comedy of the 80s, like uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, David Letterman was my hero. I eventually managed somehow to work for him. Um, the National Lampoon at its peak, uh, when like guys like Doug Kenny and John Hughes were there, um, and Beats, um, and let's see what else. Just uh, Kids in the Hall that we just talked about. That was yeah. a little. I was. They probably started when I was more in my teens, but I just remember thinking, "This is amazing." Oh, oh SCTV. I mean, it was yeah. probably the biggest touchstone for me because not only were they great, they were Canadian. Yeah. So you know that that was one of the first indications to me that Canada could punch above its weight in comedy and entertainment and. And it was always kind of bittersweet when somebody like Martin Short became huge in the States, because on the one hand, it was like, one of us is succeeding. And then, but on the other hand, it's like, oh, we've lost him yeah. a little bit. Yeah, he's um, no longer stars. Yes, yes. But uh, it, yeah, it was just, it was a, I was a really comedy besotted kid. But it, the funny thing is that I never had any sense of like, well, I'm going to participate in this world. I just knew that I loved it. Yeah, so that's kind of the... the thing that I took away from watching the movie and then from reading about you. So in the movie, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Tim Long character in the film uh, is a little socially awkward. And 
um, sure. kind of looks down on the people around him because they are not uh, as sophisticated as he would like them to be. Is that <laughs> yeah. based on real life? Well, I think it's a little bit based on real life. I mean, I think like a lot of teens who consider themselves bookish and intellectual, I think that my sense of crippling inferiority masked itself as a sense of superiority. Right. Um, I mean, I think that I've watched the movie a bunch of times and there are, obviously, there are many things that are similar to me in the way that the character is presented. I think I had more friends than the character in the movie. I like to think I did. And I think I was integrated into the community a little better than him. But yeah, I think it was because I, you know, had a little trouble thriving in a town where, let's just say a kid like me wasn't appreciated. And I'm not sure a kid like me would have been appreciated anywhere. Yeah, um, yeah I think that that, you know, snobbery and being a bit of a, a whatever that kid can be described as, um, that's a defense mechanism. And I can recognize that now. Um, so I think in that sense, it's similar, but of course we've exaggerated for the purposes of the movie. Did you really carry around like uh, Camus novels with you and that kind of thing? <laughs> no, I actually didn't. I think occasionally, I think I heard about them and then I would try to read a page and I'd be like, oh boy. Yeah, and yeah. then I'd go back to the lampoon. The idea to create this as a film uh, came from a storytelling event in somebody's backyard. So tell me a little bit about what that is, because a lot of people may not understand exactly what that would be. Uh, there was a theme and the theme was immigrants. Tell me a little bit about the, the setup of what a storytelling event is and then how you kind of forgot about it and then came up with this story. Oh, it's funny you should mention that. So I guess this has become, or at least this was sort of the fashion about five or 10 years ago that um, these events, like uh, there's an organization called The Moth here in the United States, or um, I guess the real genesis of it was, or uh, this American Life, which is a show on NPR here in the States where people just tell first person stories um, that are true, um, that last anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes. And, uh, and it's, it was sort of a form of long form comedy, but based in reality. You're listening to my interview with Tim Long. His film, The Exchange, will be on VOD on July 30th. And, and it's, it, it sort of took off and it became a thing that happened both on the radio and you know there were these storytelling events. And this particular event was sponsored by uh, an organization, and I'm, they're going to kill me because I can't remember the name. Uh, my, it's called My Friend's Place to benefit um, homeless teens in Los Angeles. And so this happened in the backyard of somebody who was a major donor uh, to My Friend's Place. And it was just they invited like 10 or 12 comedy writers to come tell their stories. And yes, the topic was immigrants. And my first instinct was, yeah, let me tell my, in, my immigrant story. But then I thought, well, my immigrant story involves getting in my dad's Honda and driving across the bridge into Michigan. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't that heavy with drama. But then I remembered, well, um, my first major experience with an immigrant was when I was a teenager. And as, as I described it, I couldn't make a friend, so I imported one. <laughs> uh, and so I brought in this kid, and I thought he would be just like me. I thought it would be, he'd be a little sullen. I thought he would dress in dark clothes. I thought he would we would be very bookish and walk around wearing berets. Um, and instead, uh, and, and I should stress that the character in the movie is very different from the kid I had come in, but um, he was very popular, uh, incredibly charismatic, 
Um, and let's just say he was very successful with the ladies in a way that I emphatically <laughs> was not. Um, and it made me crazy, uh, both out of jealousy and out of disappointment and, and whatever else. But God bless him. You know, as in the movie, the kid was just so friendly to me and we ended up bonding in a way that was not at all expected. Uh, and we shot in Ottawa. It was shot, a bunch of it was shot in Ottawa. Yeah, and, and the surrounding areas. I think, yeah, pretty much all of it, which was great. And I was there the whole time, which was great. Yeah, screenwriters usually aren't on set. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it, it's funny, and you can maybe speak to this, that even though the film is based on your experience, it is your story, it's your words, often screenwriters, uh, once the film actually starts uh, shooting, are shunted to the side. And, it's true. It's and, true. And this did not happen here. So I guess the first question, why are not uh, writers, you know, given more respect? And then what exactly <laughs> did you do while you were on set? Um, well, <laughs> the first question is sort of an eternal Hollywood question. I just think the system has been set up for years where directors have just bullied screenwriters. Um, and but I have to say that I think that's changing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, especially in the world of comedy, because I think there is an understanding that, you know, screenwriters, without screenwriters, there would not be a movie. Um, and, it's, and especially in comedy, I think, uh, especially the last 25, 30 years, um, there's been an understanding that not only are screenwriters important, but they're vital on the set. Mm -hmm. Because you end up, you know, you have a script uh, that you bring to the set, and obviously everyone prepares for it, and you shoot at least a couple takes as written, but then in almost any comedy movie that's shot these days, um, you'll stop and then you'll consult and the screenwriter will talk to the director. Sometimes there's more than one writer on the set and you'll think, well, do we have any alts? Which right. just means alternative lines. Uh, and then you'll come up with some ideas. And of course, when you're dealing with experienced comedy actors, they are willing, they are able to improvise. And also you can yell things before the director even says cut. It's like, try it this way. <laughs> and then that, then they'll just re-say the line. Right. Um, and everyone on our, our set was incredibly adept at that, uh, especially Jennifer Irwin, who plays the mom, um, and Paul Bronstein, who plays the dad. I guess you could say they were my mom and dad, <laughs> even though they're both a couple of years younger than me. It's very weird. So, and I was also very lucky because Dan Mazur, the director, came from, uh, you know, Borat. He basically yeah. was one of the people who invented that character along with Sasha Baron Cohen. And their whole thing is to have a bunch of writers around and to just keep spitballing ideas again and again and again. And he's a writer himself. So the distinction between the writer and the director is a little more porous. One thing about Dan, he's, he's not, uh, you know, if he doesn't like something, he will tell you pretty directly. So, you know, often we'd be preparing, you know, you'd, go to, you'd be preparing to go to bed and thinking about the scenes the next day. And he would call me and say like, I was looking over the scenes for tomorrow. They're not great. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd be like, can you rewrite scenes three and five by tomorrow at 6 a.m.? And I'd be like, yes, I can. Because how often am I going to make a movie based on my own life? So mm -hmm. I would stay up late and, and do a rewrite. And um, and so God bless him. He was very, very collaborative. And I could give him almost any suggestion. And I'm sure he, I annoyed him sometimes. But uh, I think we worked really well together. You've written uh, so much for television, for The Simpsons. The list of episodes you've written is as long as my arm. Uh, you've been with <laughs> The Simpsons for over 20 years. Is there a difference between writing uh, for an episode of television in that way and then writing for uh, film, specifically, I guess, The Exchange? Well, absolutely. I mean, just in terms of the amount of time it takes. I mean, mm -hmm. our show does take a long time to put together, I think. 
from conception of the idea to actually airing the idea often takes 10 months or 12 months, but that's, that's lightning fast compared to film. I mean, I, you just write draft after draft, after draft, after draft with movies, because there's a lot to get right. And honestly, there's also a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So a lot of, and, and there's people who have to put up money um, and everybody has to be heard. Um, And the process, the process usually ends up working out, but, you know, obviously there's a, also the issue of, you know, the Simpsons, the stories take 20 minutes to play out. So if you're not, there's not a lot of fat on the bone there. Right. Whereas with the movie, this movie came out at, I think the running time is something just under 90 minutes without the credits. So the thing can breathe a little bit. So, I mean, that, that, and that's one of the things I like about the movie. Like you can spend 12 to 15 minutes establishing just what an idiot this Tim Long guy is. <laughs> and also what, and giving a sense of the sort of the sweetness and the slight eccentricity of the town before, um this explosive force comes even comes in and it's so it's nice you can give it a little more contour and a little more shading so it's much different than writing for the simpsons but you must have learned something from that experience from 20 years of that uh that influenced the exchange oh a hundred percent i mean i feel like i always say that you know a lot of people they end up going into massive debt to go to screenwriting school at nyu or usc mm-hmm. and i went to screenwriting school and got paid for it <laughs> because I was in a room with all these just monster writers, um, guys, there's, there was a guy named George Meyer from whom I learned so much and a million people, David Merkin, Al Jean, just uh, probably most of all, James L. Brooks, who um, is sort of the godfather of our show. And as you know, invented the Mary Tyler Moore show. Well, and without him, there'd be no sitcoms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he had, and then he went on from mass, he went on from massive sitcom success to massive movie success, like terms of endearment and as good as it gets. And I feel like he, and he's such a shockingly good guy. I think that his, you know, his secret has always been that, you know, he would always, his shows and his movies would always have massive laughs, but then there would always be this place where they they were kind of unabashedly emotional. Um, and there was actual character development. And I really walked away from, you know, I went into the into the exchange feeling like, yeah, I want this to be funny and to have like really, you know, wacky set pieces, but I really want people to care about these characters. Mm. And the degree to which I succeeded in the movie, or at least tried to do that, I think is, is, has a lot to do with Jim. Why do you think, another Simpsons question is, why do you think that the Simpsons are able to predict world events in the way that they have? <laughs> Uh, there's just another story that popped up on my news feed about uh, in 2014, there was an episode that they showed Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic space flight. So seven <laughs> years before it happened, the Simpsons predicted it would happen. Uh, why do you think that they're so good at this? Every day, there's a new meme uh, suggesting that they have you know, some sort of psychic ability over there. I would love to say that we have any sort of psychic ability, but <laughs> really, you know, once you get 750 episodes in or whatever it is, yeah. it, there's a real monkeys at a typewriter effect. You're going to predict everything. Look, I remember the day that this writer named Dan Graney pitched a joke where we had an episode that was sort of set in the future and Lisa Simpson was president. And uh, she said something like, boy, President Trump really left us a big mess. And then we thought that was the funniest thing. And we were like, oh boy, we'll put that in. And, and we were like, is it too big? I mean, the only thing that kept us from putting it in, we thought, That's, is it too crazy? Right. Um, little did we know that we would be talking about it 20 years later. You're listening to my interview with Tim Long. His film, The Exchange, will be on VOD on July 30th. As much as I'd like to take credit for us having some prescience, 
It's it, like a lot of like a lot of my career. It's mostly dumb luck. You spent a lot of time uh, working for Spy magazine, and I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that as well because I loved Spy. I thought oh, that it was bless you. smart. I thought that it was funny. I thought that it was um, uh, above all uh, for me anyway. Uh, it it didn't really punch down. I always felt that the articles mm-hmm. were kind of, uh, a, even though it was parody and and there were certain farcical elements to it, I always felt that they were kind of working at the top of their intelligence. And that and right. uh, tell me, yeah, tell me a little bit about that experience. It's it's long gone now, uh, sadly, because I think right now it would be amazing to have Spy Magazine. Absolutely, but you can see its influence everywhere. I mean, just just the reverence of it, and yeah. Um, and and also just like what you said, like they were always, there was a real revolutionary spirit. It was so smart and so droll, but at the same time, like, yeah, they were the first people to take on Donald Trump and say like, wow, look at this idiot. Yeah. Um, and any number of powerful people. And also, you know, they were interested in the way that Hollywood really worked or the way that Wall Street really worked and, and exposing some of these idiots who've made such a mess of the world. Um, and so, yeah, that was such an incredible experience. And the level of writing was just so smart. And they never tried to dumb things down, like mm-hmm. you said. Um, and it was just, and, it, and the two guys who founded it were this guy, uh, were Kurt Anderson, who was, who's this unbelievably smart writer who um, was later the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, has written a couple of crazily smart novels and still does... I think a radio show on NPR and he could not have been more encouraging to me and I'm still in really good touch with him. And also this guy, Graydon Carter, mm-hmm. another great Canadian yeah. who went on to edit uh, Vanity Fair. And those guys, just the combination of just ultra high intelligence, like you said, and, and that irreverent parodic spirit, just like, I feel like that just sank into my bones there. I love this school, huh? I go to this school now. Yeah. Please stop speaking. This is Stefan. He is the exchange student from France. Gary's a gym teacher. Gary's also the local law enforcement. I'm firm, but I'm fair. And uh, I don't see color. Oh, no. You should uh, go see the doctor. I yeah. read uh, an interview with you where you said that you like to take a moment to celebrate when things go right. You pour yourself a gin and tonic. <laughs> And you know, mm-hmm. sit back and relax. Wow, you've you've done your research, boy. <laughs> you're down to my favorite cocktail. That's right. Well, uh, in, is it Hendrix gin? Do you like Hendrix gin? Good gosh, yes, yeah. absolutely. For the record, if anyone wants to send me any hooch, I like Hendrix gin yeah. with fever tree tonic, uh, with a slice of cucumber, not lime. Have you tried the fever tree cucumber tonic? No, <laughs> that sounds like a game changer. It is. It is a bit of a game changer. There's more I, sugar have in you it. Have had a couple already this morning? I have not, but uh, <laughs> okay. um, I, uh, I I don't mind the gin and tonic, and we have a, a cupboard full of tonic over there. Um, but okay, how have you it. celebrated the exchange? It's done. It's coming out. Your baby is going out into the world. There's nothing more you can do with it. Uh, There's nothing more I can do. Well, although I can do nice interviews like this one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be ready to celebrate until it's actually out in the world. We'll see. Because there's always, to me, I mean, especially, I think this is part of being a comedy writer. You always expect the next disaster. So something, it, it's like until we're actually, and it also comes from being a Blue Jays fan. You just, (laughs) I still remember years where it's like, we've got the division clinched. It's like, no, we don't. And then Detroit would surge past us. So, or a Maple Leafs fan. I don't even have to get into that. So, um, 
yeah, I will celebrate in maybe two weeks. For now, I'm, I'm keeping my uh, normal outlook of dread. <laughs> uh, well, Tim, thanks so much for this. What a pleasure to speak to you. Real treat to talk to you, sir. That was Tim Long talking about his film, The Exchange. Buy him a gin and tonic. I'm sure it'll make him a happy guy. Or better yet, check the movie out on VOD starting on July 30th. My next guest is actor and comedian Jessica Curson. She was recently awarded Best Female Comic by the Mac Association in New York City and also recently accepted the Nightlife Award for Best Stand-Up Comedian in New York City. You know her from her television specials. Perhaps if you've been lucky enough to see her at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, which I have been, we talk about that a little bit in this interview, uh, you know how funny she really is. Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm, I'm very anxious. Um, and I was walking down the street the other day and this girl was walking on in front of me and she was on the phone and I listened to her conversation and it was literally like, oh my God, I was on Instagram and I posted this post and I look so good. Like I look so good. I look so pretty. And like nobody commented, nobody, nobody commented. Like Julie, Amy, Melissa, nobody commented. I was like freaking out. Instagram. So I, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, I've been following you. And she ran away. In this interview, we talk about her feature-length documentary, Hysterical, which explores the changing landscape of women in stand-up comedy and how she taught Robert De Niro to be funny. And of course, we talk about Just for Laughs, where she will be performing this year virtually. Uh, find out all the details at www.hahaha.com. That's www, and it's fun to say, hahaha.com. Here's Jessica Curzon. I still do Zoom shows. I mean, I'm doing so many live shows, but I still do Zoom shows. And it's like, you know. How do you find them? I, I have a number of friends who are comics, and I've, I've, I've been trying to support them and, and watching the shows. And at first, I found them to be really super awkward because, I mean, there was no response. And, and it, uh, what's your experience with them? I'm so used to doing them now, but they're, I mean, they're very uncomfortable, but I'm used to them. So I, I've, you know, got, I, I can deal with them, but in a way I, I, there's something I like about them that people are like so up close and I can see their faces and their reactions, Right, right. but when they don't go well, they're horrific. Mm. Meaning like, it's just when the because i do them for a lot of companies like i do these things like during the day right for like um where they do like a, a half hour little comedy thing with some comics or an hour thing and you know if the group is uncomfortable or not into it or they don't know each other and it's just it's or they like haven't had lunch or whatever right it's like a weird experience but if when it's a company where everyone knows each other and they're a fun group it's amazing right right yeah well, the last time I saw you perform was at the Comedy Cellar, and we were sitting in the front row, like essentially on the stage, you know, that front yeah. row is right there. And I often wonder, when you are performing that way, we are so close to you, uh, if that is intrusive or if it's great. You can see the people up close and personal. It's funny you say that. It it depends how close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love, I, like, I always put the mic and the mic stand to the edge of the stage, mm -hmm. whereas some people really put it back. So yeah. I love being close and intimate. I'm that kind of comic. I love 
crowd work. I'm a crowd work comic. I love being, but, but sometimes people are too close where I feel like literally they're like inside of me, like it's crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, this is why I stay a little heavy to keep people away. Like I right. literally <laughs> keep weight on to keep people away. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, it's too much, but, yeah. but I, I do like, being close to the audience so i love that intimate inti intimacy with with uh crowds and i don't like when they see people far i don't like mm -hmm. it at all i miss i miss the comedy seller prince i miss being rammed in there with other people and yeah. it, it lends a certain energy to it it's different it feels different because you're so close and if one person laughs it seems to infect everybody else and it, it's just always fun and the ceiling's low and it's dark it just feels like the perfect room for comedy to me absolutely i mean to me that's the best club in the country there's four rooms now um they have four of them and all four i love for different reasons um they're all different you know the 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 main room at the comedy cellar is my favorite the original one and then they have a huge one, uh, the Village Underground, and then a very intimate little one, um, the Fat Black Pussycat. And then there's yeah. the bar at the Fat, Fat Black Pussycat now, which is different even. Yeah. And I just, it's, everyone's, you know, smashed in. And you're right, the energy in the room is really important. And it, it there's just a certain energy at certain comedy clubs where it just explodes. And you just feel it when you walk in the room. Mm -hmm. And then some of the rooms don't have that. And I don't work at those clubs. You're listening to my interview with Jessica Curson. Find out all about her Just for Laughs appearances at hahaha.com. Well, you have been quoted as saying that it was your grandmother that got you into stand-up comedy. How so? My grandmother literally... I was at a, the, her club. She belonged to a country club. And mm -hmm. I was sitting with my sister and my cousins... And they were all laughing. You know, I used to hold court, you know, my whole life where people would just sit around me and laugh. I was silly <laughs> and I I was always the class clown. I mean, it, it really, you know, people say that, but I really was. I learned that being funny and silly at a at, at a very early age would get people to like me. Right. Um, that power, that humor was very powerful. And that um, it, it just was... It, I was very socially uncomfortable and that it, it just helped break the ice. And she watched me, you know, make everyone laugh. And they were la she just she literally called me over to her and I and she said, Jesse, you need to be a comedian. You know, she was this very um, like big personality Jewish grandmother. And I said, what do you mean? I didn't even know what she was talking about. And she said, you need to be a stand-up comedian. And I said, I could never do that. I mean, I'd never, I did like a sixth grade play. I think I played a tree. Like I literally was petrified of performing in front of people. And she said, trust me, I'm your grandmother. She said, every time you're sitting with people, they're laughing. Every time I see you with other people, they're laughing. And I, I, I said, I could never do that. I blew it off. And then I looked in the village voice. This was 22 years ago. I was in, um, at NYU getting a master's in social work. And I, in the back of the village voice, there was a class, uh, for standup comedy. And I said, you know what, I'm so lost right now in my life and I'm down and maybe I'll take this class and just try it. And I took the class and uh, at the end of the class, this is so crazy. I performed at Caroline's on Broadway in New York City, which is like 
I know. At the at 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 the end of comedy classes in New York, you do this performance, and you invite everyone you know. So I had thirty five people there, and they all sat up front. Of course, my whole family sat in the front, and <laughs> I did five minutes of stand up, and I was so scared, Richard. I went. My mother's a therapist which is I talk about a lot about in my act right. and she had to bring me to a therapist that deals with fears and phobias and I had to do work around it. I mean, I was, I was vomiting the whole week up to it. I mean, I was sick. I was so scared and I did it and I just got into it. I started doing open mics and I was, I was always very nervous, but I kept doing it and I, I can't believe I'm still doing it 22 years later. <laughs> Was it that fear that made you better at it? It was the, it was the horrible feeling of it. Mm. Like I'm comfortable with feeling bad. I'm <laughs> with that horrible, um, like just feeling angst and, and being fearful and, and being stressed. And like, it's comfortable for me. A lot of us comics are like down and depressed and anxious and whatever. And that's what this career is really based on. So if you're not comfortable with that, it's, it's you know, a lot of people like, I taught comedy for 12 years. I'm actually teaching again on Zoom. I decided to teach all women. So I'm teaching 18 female comics from around the, con around the country right now. Um, I'm in my fifth, my fifth class tonight and uh, you know, I tell some people you're too happy to be a comic. It's hilarious. I'm like, you got to go through a horrible breakup or lose someone like something right. needs to happen to you because you're too okay. <laughs> so I was comfortable with the negative negativity of it. And, uh, and it was, it was hard and I, it was okay with me. So I kind of was chasing that, you know, that angst and, um, I was able to stick stick with her grandmother suggested she become a stand-up comic i thought that was kind of unusual grandmothers don't usually push you in that direction so i asked if there was a show business tradition in her family here's what she had to say both my parents were in like community theater mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was a huge stand-up fan she was very into the borscht belt comic so she was always seeing comedians my stepbrother is Zach Braff from mm -hmm. Scrubs. He was always auditioning. So we were in that whole world uh, at, right when I met him. So my mom would take him to auditions and then he got parts very early on. So that was all happening. And so I don't know, We, but we were always in like the arts and entertainment. Um, it was, I honestly think that they all saw my talent with making people laugh early on. No one was ever shocked that I became a comic. Like even right. people I grew up with and people I went to college with were like, of course you're a comedian. Like mm -hmm. I, I just, it was always a gift I had to make people laugh. And I was always a mimic and I always could mock people and, you know, see someone and immediately do a character of them. Well, let's talk then about uh, the classes that you're teaching. The classes for are for all women because only about 10% of stand-up comics on the road uh, are women. You're looking to change that inequality. I kind of decided I wanted to just do it with women at first because there's so many women who need guidance and a lot of the class is also about business and ha helping them to get into clubs and um, how to deal with men in this business and how to deal with bookers and all different kinds of things. Um, so many men and women are so clueless 
And I, women need guidance in this business. And you, you, you said 10% of women who are on the road, there's so many women doing stand up. Like in New York, there's a lot bigger percentage of that doing stand up. But on the road, you see how it's 10%. I mean, it's really maybe even less, I think. I mean, if you look at the lineups, it's not one out of every 10. Yeah. It's, I think it's less than that uh, if you look at the clubs on the road. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's so crazy to me because it, it's, it's, I say this in so many interviews. If you, you can go to a show with 10 guys and no one ever leaves the show, and, the, and a lot of them bomb, they're horrible, and you, no one leaves the show and goes, men suck. <laughs> Men aren't funny, but you go to a show with with ten, nine men and one woman and she doesn't do great. And, and half the audience will leave and go, women suck. Female comics suck. It's so it's just this thing that people do with female comics. And, and why so? Well, if you think about it, a funny woman equals a powerful woman. OK, being funny is being very powerful and it's very threatening to a man who doesn't feel comfortable with women. So when I go on stage and I'm making people laugh, like belly laughing, like hysterical, most of the men are dying laughing at me, but there's a handful of men who look in, enraged and literally just stare, they, they, and I'm being serious, mm -hmm. they, they're not okay with women. They have a very hard time with, and it's not about me. It's interesting. I don't take it personally. I literally sometimes, if someone heckles me or they look in, I'm like, what happened to you? It's hilarious. Like everyone cries laughing because I'll be like, who hurt you? What did your mother do to you that makes you so angry at me? You're listening to my interview with Jessica Curson. Find out all about her Just for Laughs appearances at hahaha.com. JFL. It's different this year. It's a hybrid uh, festival for the second year because of the pandemic. Uh, what is your uh, uh, involvement in it? I know there's a West Coast element. There's an East Coast element. Um, how are you going to uh, perform? Will it be uh, via Zoom, I assume? Yes. Well, I'm doing a show live at the stand in New York City that they're showing, um, uh, you know, over the Internet, of course. Yeah. And I'm very excited. I, I'm always excited to do anything with JFL. Yeah. It's it's part of my family in this business, JFL and the whole uh oh my god, the whole staff there, the whole festival is is yeah. I, I love JFL so much. I'm so um blessed to be a part of the festival. I've done it, I don't know, maybe seven times or something. Yeah. And I just actually more than that, because I've done it in so many other countries too, in different right. places in Toronto, Vancouver, you know, all over. Um, I, I am, I'm so blessed to be a part of it this year and I always will support them in any way, shape or form. And I, I'm, I want so many people to watch it and, you know, however it can be done. I, I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of it. It's a great festival and I can't wait. This year will be exciting. I can't wait till next year when surely to God will all be sitting in the same room together. I know. Yeah. Uh, last question, and this is one I'm sure you've been asked a hundred thousand times, but uh, when I announced that I was having you on, people wrote in and said, how do you teach Robert De Niro to be funny for uh, a, a film like The Comedian? Well, Robert De Niro is so funny. So people, he, it's so, it's so interesting what, what we think of people just from what we see, of course. I mean, how do you know people from what you see in the, 
anything, whatever. He is hilarious. He's so silly, which no one would ever know. Like he used to have me make videos on his phone and just be like, like just make faces and silly characters. And then he'd bring it home and watch it and just laugh. Um, he said that playing a comic who's been doing it 36 years was one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing he's had to do in a movie. And I got it. Like, it's different to just play a comic, but to play someone who's been doing it for 36 years is so hard because of the confidence part of having to perform on stage. It's right. different to just tell jokes, but to have that, you know, character of yeah. doing it for that long is is hard. Um, so it wasn't easy, to be completely honest with you, because he was intimidated to be on a stage in front of live audiences. Mm -hmm. It was hard for him. Um, I was in his ear, so he wore an earpiece. Oh, wow. And I used to make him laugh so hard because I was out of my mind. I mean, I am out of my mind. So I was so, you know, I would, and I was giving him crowd work stuff to say and stuff constantly when he was on stage. I'd be like, look at the woman to the right you know, whose boob yeah. is basically hanging out and say this or do like, so I was constantly talking to him while he was performing. He was very open and he's, he is so humble that it's frightening. Like, I cannot believe how humble he is. I, I've worked with so many people, of course, over the past however many years. And out of everyone, I think he's one of the most humble people I've ever, he'd be like, Jessica, help me. What should I do with this? And I'm thinking, that's Robert De Niro. Yeah. And then you have these people who are nothing, who are the most obnoxious, entitled, like won't take any feedback. And he is the most open. He's great. I'm trying to take care of myself. So I downloaded this app where you count your calories. The problem is I lie on it. How sick is that? <laughs> I lie on my own app. That is sick. That was Jessica Curson. You can find out all about her Just for Laughs appearances at hahaha.com. They're virtual. You can watch them from the comfort of your own living room. Although, when we get back to comedy clubs, it'll be even better. She's amazing live. Big thanks to Jessica. Big thanks to Tim Long. Check out his movie, The Exchange, which is on VOD this very weekend. Uh, but as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.